This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Claudio Sant about a really, I think, a really important book, which I am hoping a lot of people listening will run out and buy. It's called Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory. How are you, Claudio? I'm doing well, thanks. So I could probably talk about this book for way too long. We don't have, you know, we, we don't have hours. So I'm going to, I will have to limit the questions that I ask you about it because there's so many important pieces to this. Uh, but before we, I start asking questions about the book, literally, which is, I should give a little introduction that it's about the period 1830 to 1840, what is known as the period of Indian removal in American history. And I know this is, you know, a continuation of your work uh, as a historian. You've done books in the past that are about the relation between Native Americans, Blacks, and white people, you know, the kind of dominant culture before. But I'm kind of curious what fixed you on this particular story. Yeah. So this is a it's, you know, it's the most familiar chapter, really, in American Indian history. And, and I think for that reason, I had stayed away from it for for many, many years. And then what um, what really reawakened my interest is that I inherited my grandfather's correspondence. He escaped from Hungary in 1838 and and continued corresponding with his family through 1943 until they were deported to Auschwitz in the spring of 1944. Hungarian Jews were among the last to be deported by Nazis. So I, I had that correspondence is, is in Hungarian and I had it translated and read through it and then started reading literature on um, more generally about deportations in the 20th century. And this got me thinking about the deportation that occurred much closer to my current home in Athens, Georgia. And that, that of course, is Indian removal. And I had been dissatisfied with, just as a teacher, there, there were not particular books or articles that I was really excited about assigning for this subject. Um, and so I started thinking more about that and how the literature was different. This literature that was discussing deportations in the 20th century was really quite distinct from the historiography surrounding Indian removal. And that, so that got me to dig into this story, um, and it just kind of un, unfolded from there. Well, the theme of the story is one that continues from the earliest times of white settlement, white invasion, I would prefer to call it, of North America. Um, you know, this notion of, and, and I think you're, it's sort of, uh, by 1830, you have 200 years of uh, North American history of conflict between the invading Europeans who become Americans and the um, people who lived here previously or originally. But I think what happens, and you talk about the Indians who lived in Ohio and the, what was then called the Northwest Territory at that early stage of, of history, but you focus mostly on the Southeast, I think, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, where the tribes, principally the Choctaws, Creeks, Cherokee, Seminoles, Chickasaws were, 
And I think I wonder about, you know, what sets that that area. Well, I I think we talk. You talk about what sets that area apart uh, to a great extent. It's the desire of um, slaveholding plantation owners f- to have more land. Right. And so the book, I mean, as you point out, the book really covers the entire story from north to south. But but you're absolutely right that I that the heart of the story is in the south. And, and that's because that's where the um, majority of indigenous Americans are living in the 1830s. It's also where the political pressure is brought to bear on the federal government. It comes from the South and and really from Georgia more than any other state. And the largest indigenous land base in the 1830s is in the South. So the the Creeks on something like a quarter or or a third of what becomes the state of Alabama in 1830 and, and half of Mississippi is owned by Choctaw and Chickasaw peoples. And this is some of the most valuable agricultural land in the entire world at the time. The um, the the Black Belt, which is it's it's named for the color of the soil. It's this crescent of soil that 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 arcs through Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi is is particularly um, good for cultivating cotton. And planters knew that in the 1830s, and, and they really lusted after this land. So, um, so that's really, I think, where the heart of the story is. But I do try to keep both the North and South um, in perspective in the book. And I also talk a lot about the politics in, in Washington, D.C. Right, and it's so, it is interesting to me how the, um, particularly the Southern landowners, allied with um, New York financiers, which you document, that this was not, strictly speaking, driven entirely by Southern populations, that it was really a an entire country working together uh, for financial gain. And this really surprised me when I, when I dug into this project, because we do, I think we tend to think of this as, and in fact, I think we, we often conflate Indian removal with the Trail of, of Tears, by which we mean the removal of the Cherokee Nation. And so we think of it uh, as a Southern story, and we think of it as being driven by Southern planters and, and of course, by a, by a Southern president, uh, Andrew Jackson. But, it, but as I was exploring the story, I... I came across these references to uh, Northeastern financiers based in Wall Street or in Boston and Philadelphia who were who were sending capital down into the South because they recognized that this was a once and as they said, once in a generation opportunity to acquire extraordinarily valuable land on the cheap. So um, a lot of these folks had been involved in financing cotton cultivation and insuring slaves or, in, or insuring the shipment of cotton across the Atlantic to Britain. And then they turned to um, investing in native land. And it, it really changes the way that the dispossession unfolded. There is so much capital flooding the South millions and millions of dollars, 1830s dollars. So this is a huge amount of money. Um, 
And it just leads to this frenzy of, of land speculation and dispossession, sometimes often at, at gunpoint. And in fact, if you follow the financial trail, it, it, it goes up to Wall Street and then it actually crosses the Atlantic to London. So there are um, European investors who are also putting their money um, into land speculation in the South in the 1830s. And of course, it, it's resonant up to the modern day because what it really demonstrates is that, you know, the, the desire for money, the greed for building wealth will overcome almost all scruples for at least some people. Yes, there's one of my uh, favorite characters. I mean, he's a scoundrel um, through and through. Uh, Eli Shorter is, he's a, kind of small time banker in based in Columbus, Georgia. And he hooks up with some financiers in New York to invest in creek lands right across the Chattahoochee River, so in present day Alabama. And, and he buys hundreds of um, hundreds and hundreds of their farms, uh, hundreds of square miles of land, in fact, um, and he and his partners uh, exhort, uh, encourage each other to, as as one of them says, let's let's steal all we can. They they are shameless uh, about it. Right, and you know, it it what I thought was this sort of touches on something that I thought was really powerful about your book, and that is that you because the record keeping of that of the nineteenth century by the federal government, maybe the state government too, was fairly good, um, you're able to name some of the dispossessed. Many of the people who whose land was stolen, um, you can name who they were, possibly only first names in some cases, but you brought that into, you know, that you made that personal. And, and I thought that that was a really important counterpoint, that it's not just the numbers. It's not just uh, kind of distanced thinking about millions of acres, thousands of people, millions and millions of dollars. It's actual people's lives and their um, their their children and their families and their goods, some of which were enumerated in some cases where when they are dispossessed, all of their goods taken. And you you actually, when you talked about your family members being ethnically cleansed in Hungary, as many of my family members were in Lithuania, the same exact things happened. The people would move people out of their homes and then go live in them, you know, and they knew who the, they knew the people that they were dispossessing. Yes. And, and, and some of the, so some of the goods of the dispossessed were were seized by the federal government and then auctioned off, and and we know we know who bought those goods, and they they're listed item by item: a fiddle or a, a playing horn, a bed, a, a canoe, uh, and and some of these goods are surely still in Georgia today. They probably exist as they're probably kept as 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 family heirlooms. Um, but but you talk about these individual stories, and they exist in the in the archives in Washington D.C. They they exist um, often as fragments, but you can piece them together, and 
And one of the things I set out to do when I when I started this project was to get away from the sense. I, I, I felt that in the existing literature on the subject, the people who were dispossessed felt too distant and, and often kind of exoticized and, and sometimes romanticized. Um, so I wanted to help people today, readers see them um, simply as families, as as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and brothers and sisters. And so, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I don't actually use the word Indian in, in the book, except in context. I just feel there, there are so many associations, um, good and or bad, depending on your perspective, uh, that we have um, when we use the word Indian. I, I wanted to get away from that and, and, and just talk about these people as dispossessed families, and they are losing their entire multi-generational inheritance in the space of, of just a few years. Um, in fact, I, at one point in the book, I, I calculate how much uh, money they lost, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount. It's equivalent. So if you take the Choctaw Nation, um, they were dispossessed of basically the equivalent of the capitalization of, the, of one of the largest corporations in the country in the 1830s. So it's, it's a lot of money, and, and, and that resonates for generations. Well, it's true. If you think about the, you you have a map, and one one of the maps shows the uh, uh, tribal nations at the time of, or just preceding the time of uh, the removals, and those are substantial pieces of. It's I mean they were nations within the nation, and that was part of the problem, uh, but they were literally moved out and if the value i mean you can see that the amount of land that they owned was massive you know clearly a homeland not just you know not just a place to live but a, a huge amount of territory right and what i mean what's extraordinary is just how quickly it's transformed so it, it goes from family farms most of them are um, subsistence, they're subsistence farmers and they're hunting as well seasonally. Uh, but in, in the space of a few years, these regions are, are clear cut and enslaved peoples are, are shipped in to cultivate cotton. So, so when we think of the South and we think of the South in, in this period of history, the antebellum South, we think of the kind of iconic um, these sprawling slave plantations, but it's really important to remember that only some 30 years before the outbreak of the Civil War, these this area, really the heart of, of what became the Confederacy was still Indi Indian country. That's right. And I think that it's also important to recognize, well, the organizational status of the tribes that were moved out, that they were in fact adaptational throughout the period of that historical era that we you know we tend to as you kind of earlier alluded to that we have kind of in the language that we use um uh romanticized and fetishized um native cultures and we think of them as you know and, and that's partially the historical uh excuse making of the conquering side which is to say 
uh, the mythology of the disappearing Indian, you know, and and that you can read that in the the utterances of Andrew Jackson and others of that era, you know, kind of alluding to the tribes uh, being wretched and um, falling apart, you know, and and they weren't. That was a completely false narrative. The tribes, particularly in the Southeast, were very strongly uh, formed as cultural groups that were self-governing. And, and it was kind of, it's just sort of shocking to see, when you read this to realize how thoroughly they were essentially forcibly removed for the purpose of stealing their land. Right. And there's a very cynical PR campaign, which is which is directed and launched by the federal government. And so they're they're planting articles in the leading journals and newspapers around the country, which are making this exact point that these are wretched people, that in fact, this is a benevolent policy. They say that we have to move them west of the Mississippi, and this is going to save them and uplift them. Um, but again, it, it's, it's cynical and it's calculated uh, because it's, it's largely not true. And Native peoples are frustrated that they have so much difficulty setting the record straight. And, and, and they do say, they, they, especially the Cherokees are very adept at this. They go, some of them go on speaking tours in the Northeast the Cherokee Phoenix, which is the first in indigenous run newspaper um, in the Western Hemisphere, I believe, um, tries to set the record straight. Um, and they're somewhat successful, in, at least in the North, but, but again, they're up against the federal government. And, and so there's this just this wash of misinformation and I think for most white Americans, and, and so voting Americans, they are um, distant enough from this and disinterested enough that they are willing to accept the government line. They don't ask too many questions and they probably tell themselves that, yes, it's true there, this is a policy that has been formulated to save indigenous Americans. Well, and I think also that there was a degree of white supremacy as you, you know, and, and you talk about that in the book. But I think if we're thinking about the North, um, the uh, kind of narrative of that, that affects the Northern sort of general public's ability to take the side of, of Native Americans is that they had already uh, enforced the removal of Native Americans from the Northeast and from most of the rest of the country. And they, and this myth of the disappearing Indian was pretty powerful. So it's hard for those, uh, you know, even the well-meaning anti-removal uh, folks to have enough support. And you also have the cynicism and the power moves of the of the South being pretty well organized. And I think as you pointed out, there were, there was a vote at one point about this action that fell only four votes short in the house of representatives. Uh, but it was pretty, pretty um, cynically maneuvered by the, the winning side. Yeah. So the Indian removal act, because this is all at the end of the day, it's a piece of legislation. And, uh, and so that's one of the things I really wanted to underscore. There was nothing inevitable about this. Certainly indigenous Americans did not think that this was inevitable and, and they fought it 
um, to the bitter end. And so the, the legislation is passed in May of 1830. Andrew Jackson makes it clear that this is his, the kind of um, central platform of, of his administration. He wants to see this, this piece of legislation go through. In a Congress that was overwhelming, overwhelmingly Jacksonian, it passed by only five votes out of 199 casts. And it proved to be the really the single most controversial issue to come before the, the Republic up to that point in time. And so it generated a mass petition campaign that was based in the North, um, hundreds, in fact, thousands of, of Northerners signed these petitions in which they said that the government would be betraying its founding revolutionary values if it went through, if it put this policy into action. There was really a sense that at the time, I think in, in the 1830s, this was just a couple generations removed from the American Revolution. So it was, it was far enough away that these folks hadn't participated in the revolution, but they certainly, their, their grandparents had, and they, and they, they heard these stories about this time. Um, and there was a real sense, I think, that, that the fate of the Republic was at stake, that the, this would be a turning point, that, that either the United States would live up to its values or it would be, um, like, um, any of the other, as they said, corrupt, um, despotic governments or empires in Europe. But as you say, on the other side of this, there's, there's white supremacy and there's ethnocentrism, there's a tremendous amount of capital, and then there's just Andrew Jackson's administration twisting arms and trying to get those final votes to get this legislation through. Right, and it's also, I think there was a sense that you talked about this also, the accusations that Northerners were being hypocritical because their own uh, states were already, um, they'd already been ethnically cleansed and they were living on uh, stolen land themselves on a certain level. So, yeah, and that's uh, right. Southerners pointed this out. This was the white Southerners, this was their favorite thing, their, their favorite um, kind of strategy in Congress to say, you know, you don't, don't preach to us about about saving the Indian because you already um, wiped out all in, all the indigenous Americans who lived in the in the Northeast. But but I think William Apis put it best. He's he was a, a Pequot minister. Um, he was living in New York City at the time, and and he said, "Look, um, our white friends, as he called them, who were living in the Northeast, have uh, have trouble, you know, living up to their values, but." let's find friends where we can and, and let's encourage them to do better rather than reject them absolutely. Right. Now, it's funny. I had just, I had just started reading William Apis's uh, biography um, when I got to Unworthy Republic, and I, I'm going back to that. He is very eloquent. He really is. One of my, one of my favorite um, kind of, you know, early Republic intellectuals, really an extraordinary person. Yeah. Well, and I also, you know, I, I kind of honor him because Pequots lived in this part of the country where I am. And I, I am speaking today on land that was, that belonged to the Pugussets who were friends of the Pequots at one time, enemies too of the Pequots, but friends mm -hmm. of theirs at one time. But 
I wanted to talk about John Ross because, well, you, you know, speaking of Apis makes you realize also that John Ross was an incredibly eloquent and very smart uh, observer of of American culture from the Cherokee side, uh, but also that the Cherokees had kind of adopted a a pretty powerful constitution of their own that was meant to show the white people that indeed uh, they were equal in the in their sensibilities about um, civilization. Yeah, I think there's a there's a tremendous amount of diversity between and among uh, Native American nations at this time, but also just within each nation. So so if you take the case of the Cherokee Nation, there are folks who who lots of the majorities surely spoke only Cherokee and were subsistence farmers and, and hunters. But you did have uh, folks like John Ross, who was the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, who who were uh, English was really his first language, and he had a better command of the language than than his antagonist Andrew Jackson. Uh, extraordinarily savvy, used to lobbying in Washington D.C. He had his favorite hotel he would stay at when he was up there. So he, you know, he and and others understood. U.S. politics of the time and strove to find their place in the republic. So they did not think it was impossible, as white, at least some white Americans kept insisting, and they did not think it was inevitable. And in fact, after even after the Indian removal legislation was passed in, in 1830, John Ross is still fighting. He still thinks he might be able to find a permanent place for the Cherokees in the Southeast. And in fact, right up into through 1837, really, it still seems like there's a possibility that um, that he will be successful. And, and of course, um, at the end of the day, he's not. The Cherokees are finally removed in, in 1838. So do you, I mean, I'm just curious, you don't, this is not really part of your job as a historian, but do you find yourself sometimes wondering if there were moments where things had gone a little differently, um, you know, if perhaps um, you know the 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 vote had changed for the uh, uh, passage of the Indian Removal Act, what what would it have looked like? I mean, I, I sometimes worry that um, we think of history as inevitable, uh, but and the forces, you know, the economic forces, the social forces, the political forces are pretty powerful, and sometimes. You know, you can imagine that this would have happened in some other way, regardless. But do you, do, just as you studied this, did you ever think about that? Absolutely, and I, I think it's it is far too easy to fall into this trap to think that the way it unfolded is the way it had to unfold. But, but that's absolutely not the case. It, there's nothing inevitable about it, and we can't um, precast any better than we can forecast events today. Um, you know, I think if this if this legislation had not passed, um, it's not that somehow centuries of dispossession would have been reversed or white supremacy would have toppled. That's that I you know I'm not not that naive, but I but I do think that it would have changed things in a couple of ways. For one, I think white Americans 
would have imagined the geography of their nation somewhat differently because because post 1840, as far as they're concerned, there are no native peoples within the Republic any longer. Um, as far as they're concerned, they've all been pushed to the um, farthest westernmost advancing edge. And so when they, when they think of their nation, they think of it as a, a land of, of white citizens and, and, and black slaves. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, though, is, is, is the politics and the political imagination of indigenous Americans. And I, I wouldn't want to underestimate their creativity and, and savviness in, in finding some sort of workable relationship in the 1840s and 1850s had they been able to retain their traditional homelands east of the Mississippi River. Or at least parts of them. You know, maybe not the entire, the amount of Georgia, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi that they owned might have been reduced, but they might have been able to find a way of holding on. That's a good point. They, they were not fools. They understood what they were up against, and they understood that they were going to have to make all kinds of it was an unjust political situation. Uh, they were going to have to make all kinds of, of painful compromises and sacrifices if they were going to be able to stay um, east of the Mississippi River. Well, and of course, although there is one thing that you brought up that I think might have made it more difficult for them no matter what happened, and that is the kind of the nature of the fear of the white minority in the South with respect to the uh, the slaves that they owned, the fear that the native tribes would in some way undermine the social hierarchy between white and black and that or or even go so far as to enlist uh, black slaves to join them, as happened with the Seminoles and quite a few of the other tribes that were where um uh, runaway slaves join native tribes, and this is a long-running fear that 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 white Americans had almost from the very first day they set foot on the continent. Uh, this this fear that 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 enslaved peoples, black slaves, would join forces with with Native Americans, and, and they do at certain times and places. But it, but in the case of the 1830s. It's, it's this particularly fraught moment because they are in the process, there are about, about 60,000 Native Americans at that time living in the South. So in the process of trying to force these people off their lands, and they're obviously, Native Americans are unwilling uh, participants in all of this, they're trying to force them off their lands. And at the same time, they want to they want to ship in um, tens of thousands, really hundreds of thousands of, of enslaved black Americans to work on these, on these lands. So um, that's a very dangerous moment. And, and white planters comment about this, about the risks that they are running. But, but the temptations for profit just overwhelm everything else. Um, it does come to a head in 1836, because it's then that the Seminole War, his second Seminole War has broken out. There is a very brief but violent um, Creek War in the summer of 1836. Creeks take up arms to fight against removal. And then there is this threat coming from Texas um, 
they they fear that that Santa Ana might cross into Louisiana and spark a, a slave revolt, and that this will just, just um, create a confl- conflagration that will sweep across the South. And they talk about this in the spring of, of 1836, the prospect of, of the whole South going up in, in flames. Wow. So it's, it's a, I mean, it is an amazing story. And uh, I really want to compliment you on telling it so well. And it's, and of course, you know, one reaction inevitably is of kind of, un, it's just so painful and so difficult to um, accept how bad, uh, how, how awful we were as Americans to our fellow human beings. Yeah, it is a. It's it's not a. Um, it's not a happy story. There's no doubt about that. And um, you know, it, it does resonate with with some of the issues that we're facing today. I think I, I was when I, I started writing the book in 2014, and the political climate was was shifting beneath my feet as I was writing, and um, that certainly I think of shaped somewhat the way I, I ended up writing the book. Um, at the end of the day, I think it made the book better and it, and it motivated me to, you know, to, to keep at it as, as I was get up and get up in the morning and, and work through this very difficult material. Yeah, it is. Well, I can see that. Um, and I guess I should ask what, what is your next project going to be? Well, so right now I'm actually working on a, a, a long-running digital project. This is going to be a interactive website, a a map that shows the population north of the Rio Grande decade by decade from 1500 to 1800. So it will show the changes in the European, indigenous, and African populations. It's um, this tremendous uh, demographic transformation that really continues to shape the modern world even today. So I'm hoping to wrap that up in the spring of, um, of next year, and, and then we'll see. <laughs> well, that's a pretty, yeah, that's a fantastic project. I've thought a lot about that, having read books about this period of transformation from 1450 onward. And I think uh, seeing the map is really, I, I can imagine it as being uh, visually powerful and intellectually stimulating. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Well, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> looking forward to seeing it too. It's been, it's been a long project. <laughs> Well, I really want to thank you for taking some time to talk to me about your book. I love this book, and I really I hope a lot of people will read it because I think we have to engage with what really, you know, the true story of what happened in this country in the course of the last 300 years. And I think this is an important segment of that. Well, so, well, thank, thank you, you, David. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Claudio Sant about Unworthy Republic, the dispossession of Native Americans, and the road to Indian territory. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.